There we are. Thanks for coming to, to join with us today as we come to worship the Lord. In a, 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 particularly if you're watching at home, realize there might be more people watching at home today um, than normal, so uh, welcome to you. Uh, we hope you have a, a sense of the, the, the joy that we have as we worship God together. And uh, for anyone who's visiting, my name is Duncan. Uh, I'm the pastor here, and it's a real joy uh, to see you with us today. Uh, in a week of bad news, uh, I want to give you a change. You get to see someone stand at a podium and deliver good news. Good news. Uh, well, um, you haven't heard it yet. Um, the, the good news is that the world was in a mess. It seemed only to be darkness all around. And then God did something amazing. Not everyone could see it, but some could see it. Like these guys I want to read about in Matthew 2. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What a joy it must have been for these men, wandering in the night, to come upon the king that had been promised. Promised King Jesus has come. That is the good news I deliver to you today to say that Jesus has come. And with him comes the hope of the world that what we see all around us today, whatever it is that troubles you most today, will not always trouble you. For is, there is the day coming when King Jesus will reign in all of its fullness on the earth. A day when all fear, a day when all sorrow, a day even when all death will be gone forever. Good morning. Um, welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship this morning. It's great to, to be with you um, and, and welcome again, as, as Duncan said earlier. Um, 
My name is Mark. I'm the pastor in training here at Bankery, for those of you who are visiting and might not know. Um, and this morning's my, my privilege to continue this mini-series that we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, where we've been looking at some of the Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled, at least in part, at Christmas time. We've looked at God's promised rescuer from Genesis 3, then God's promised hope from Isaiah 9, and today, as Sharon read for us, we're, we're looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, um, just finishing at the first half of that verse 5, and we're looking at God's promised shepherd king. And as with all of these promises in this mini-series, they're not simply promises that were spoken to those people way back then, living in distant lands and far-off times. They're promises for us here today. So the, the promised shepherd king in Micah 5 and the promised hope in Isaiah 9 and the promised rescuer in Genesis 3 are personal promises. These promises are, are living, breathing promises for us here this morning in Bankery, given to you and to me. And they are promises that we desperately need. So let's walk through Micah 5 together and see the wonderful promise in these verses, the promise of God's shepherd king. And as we do that, um, there's a, a, a wee outline that Alan might put on the screen for you. We're going to discover firstly why we need him, and then where he comes from and who he comes to. And then finally, we will look at what he will bring when he comes. So that's our, our outline for this morning. Um, this morning, we, we live in a world of wars, of unrest and fighting. Much of the globe today is involved in some form of armed conflict. We live in a world of drug wars and gang violence, in a world where injustice and corruption lead to crippling poverty, a world where, where murder is an everyday occurrence, where people who ought to protect are those who abuse their power and cause harm, in a world where Families fight and never speak again, where friends attack one another and cause deep and lasting scars. We live in a world of war, and it's all around us when we open our eyes. But it's also right inside us if we take a look at our own hearts. The world is at war, and it seems to be a war that we just cannot win. We are overwhelmed by it. And no amount of technological progress has halted it. No amount of education and scientific advancement has overcome it. We seem so powerless as a human race to stop the war that rages around us. And the reason is that as individuals, we are part of the problem. I, I am part of the problem. And it's the result of a sinful heart. So fight as we may by our own strength. We cannot overcome. We cannot by our own power achieve the peace that we so long for. We're locked in a war caused by sin that we cannot win. Not a very Christmassy, cheerful message, I see some of you may be thinking. Well, thankfully, the message doesn't end there. But it must start there because in many ways, that's precisely where Micah starts and we see it very clearly in verse 1 of chapter 5. It's only when we face up to this reality, this dreadful reality, that we can really grasp how much we need 
the promise that's to come in verses 2 to 5. Before we can grasp the good news of God's promised shepherd king, we need to see why we need him. So let's follow Micah as he does this for God's people around 700 years before the birth of Christ and see how this applies to us today. So Micah, he speaks to a people on the brink of extinction. They are weak and helpless, and this is a direct consequence of their own sin and the kings that should have led them to God. The kings that should have provided protection and peace for the nation utterly failed, sinfully failed. And as a result, we see that God here brings judgment against his people. And it's a judgment that is designed to lead to repentance and salvation, not annihilation as they actually deserve. The people here are surrounded by a terrifying and powerful enemy that is determined to destroy them through the most cruel of warfare tactics, siege warfare. They're surrounded and cut off. The enemy is going to overwhelm them. But this is not an accident. God has not taken his eye off the ball. He has, in fact, given them over to the consequences of their sinful rebellion against him. He's doing precisely what he said he would if they continued in this stubborn rebellion. They have been living as if God doesn't exist, and it's as if God now says, well, let's just see how that works out for you. Verse 1 of chapter 5 opens with the ominous word, now. And this is like a bell tolling in Micah, indicating bad news about to be announced. In Micah 4.9, we see the word now used to this effect, announcing great mourning and sin and downfall of the king. And then in 4.11, it heralds the terror of foreign nations plotting against them. And this comes to a terrible crescendo in Micah 5.1. Now, says the prophet, and we should be braced for bad news. Now, muster your troops. The attack is imminent. There is a siege laid against them. They are surrounded and cut off from all help. And there is a sense of inevitability about the downfall of the nation. They are told to muster a troop, but the very next half of the verse indicates that this really only serves to underline just how weak and powerless to resist the enemy they actually are. The sinful king will be defeated, disgraced, and dethroned. They are powerless to defend themselves. And this is a war caused by sin that they cannot win. They are utterly overpowered, exposed, and helpless. Yet this is happening not to destroy God's people, as we noted, but to cause them to see the foolishness of their ways, to see that the king that they had been relying on to provide for them and to bring them peace was occupying the place that God ought to have been. And he's not up to the job. By removing this king, God is showing the people in no uncertain terms that this king, who was their hope for peace and prosperity, is actually no hope at all. They need a better king. They need a king who can fight for them, protect them, rule over them, and be to them a strong protector leader. God's shepherd king. God is removing the other godless king, and it is a severe mercy. He will not allow his people to trust in things or people that cannot bear the weight of their expectations, who cannot deliver peace. They need a king who can do these things, and to do these things, 
he must be able to bear the weight of his people's sin. So God, in his severe mercy, removes this godless king and in doing so, leaves the people feeling exposed and weak and vulnerable. And this is a pattern of how God works salvation in us and for us. It is to the humble, not the strong, to the weak, not the powerful, and to the sick, not the well, that God comes. God brings salvation to those who know they are in desperate need of him, to those who have finally given up the hope that they can bring about peace in their own life by their own good works, by their own efforts without God. To be brought low by God in this way is a severe mercy, and it opens the door to salvation and peace with God. We see quite clearly from verse 1 here, the people needed and longed for God's promised shepherd king. They were overwhelmed because of their sin. They trusted kings that could not deliver the kind of peace they longed for and needed. They were left exposed, vulnerable, and weak in a war caused by sin that they could not win. And they so desperately needed someone better. Have we not done the same ourselves, though? Have we not put our trust in people and things that are not God to bring about peace in our own lives? Do we not still do it every day? Have we not seen, though, time and time again that these things cannot deliver the peace that they promise? Perhaps the other kings on the throne of our lives have not actually catastrophically failed us yet. But as with God's sinful people in Micah, it's really just a matter of time. No other king but the Lord can provide deep and lasting peace. All other kings will fail. If we're placing our hope in family for lasting peace, if we're trusting in our careers, our our insurance policies, our religious activities to provide us with lasting peace, We will soon see, if we have not already, that they will fail us, and we need a better king. Our very weakness and inability to provide the peace that we long for, it points us clearly to the need that we, the the truth that we need someone better. And, And then when we look and we see where God's shepherd king comes from, who he comes to, and what he can deliver, we know that it is God's shepherd king is the one that we need. So let's look at point two. Where does this shepherd king from, come from and where's, who does he come to? At the end of verse one, people are helpless, kingless, leaderless, protectionless. And it's at this very point when the people finally see their desperate need that God speaks a message of hope. In verse two, God turns to the weak insignificant small member of Judah, Bethlehem, and speaks a message of hope to her. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Here we see this ruler, this shepherd king, he will come from Bethlehem, And he also comes from of old, from ancient days. So the origins of this shepherd king has implications also for who he comes to. 
And we see this more fully in verse 3. He comes to be ruler over Israel, and he comes to his brothers. We could sum all of this up by saying in the where he comes to and who he comes to, where he comes from and who he comes to, he comes from a place of weakness to a people of weaklings. But let's just unpack that a little bit by looking at him coming from Bethlehem, from of old and to his brothers. The location of the birth is significant for a number of reasons. It's significant, firstly, because it's insignificant. The place itself is insignificant. But second, it is significant because it connects this promised shepherd king to another past shepherd king, as we'll see. But first to the insignificance of Bethlehem. This little town of Bethlehem did not even register on the list of top 100 places in Judah. When we read in in Joshua the, the, the list of cities that were allotted to Judah, Bethlehem doesn't even merit a mention. It's too small. Bethlehem had nothing to draw people to it. No palace, no seat of political or military power. It was an ordinary kind of town with nothing of note except that it was the kind of place that everyday, ordinary people lived. It was nothing special. And it seems that for this very reason, it was chosen by God to be the birthplace of this extraordinary ruler. In verse 2, bad news turns to good. And we're told in no uncertain terms that a new king is coming. And the good news shepherd king is coming to a people and a place that so desperately need him. He was coming to a place that would confound all earthly expectations, a king that could rescue the people of Micah's day from the war that they could not win. They would surely expect to be a a great military leader, a powerful king who would come from the center of power, from Jerusalem, the place of kings, And we see in Matthew 2, as Duncan read to us earlier, that this is exactly where the wise men made a beeline to when they saw the star announcing his birth. They go to the seat of power and are surprised when they do not find who they are looking for. Instead of finding this promised ruler, the shepherd king, they find Herod and they ask him if he knows where this baby has been born. His scribes and chief priests remember these verses in Micah and point the wise men in the direction of Bethlehem. These educated men who knew the scriptures were in absolutely no doubt that the shepherd king of Micah 5 is the baby born in a barn in Bethlehem. They show us very clearly that Jesus is God's promised shepherd king. God's plan here, as so often, is to use what looks unimpressive, weak, and worthless to bring about his plans for salvation, for his glory, so that we are left in absolutely no doubt that it is God's power, not man's power, that is bringing about this peace that we so long for. We contribute nothing but weakness. You can understand the wise men's confusion. Why would you expect a king to be born here? Bethlehem is not, as we said, a place of power. No military might there. There's no palace there, no throne. Yet this is where the shepherd king is to be born. And it is not a mistake, as so many might have thought of it in the days that Jesus was born. This was very intentional. 
The ruler would come from a place of weakness to a people who are weaklings. Bethlehem is synonymous with weakness and insignificance, but it's also a place of significance in in many ways because it's the place where God in ages past chose to make known his power in the choosing of a king who looked weak but would be great. And this links the origins of the shepherd king in Bethlehem and the truth that he is from of old. God's promised shepherd's king from Bethlehem, and he has promised from long, long ago. If we looked back to 1 Samuel 16, we see God at work choosing a king for his people, a king who would be a man after his own heart, a good king, not a perfect king, but a good king, and a shadow of the perfect king yet to come. And this king too would be from Bethlehem. David was the smallest of his brothers, overlooked, unimpressive in appearance, seemingly weak and not worthy to be king. However, we see that David was the one who would be king. And he was also a shepherd boy who, despite his small stature, slayed the giant Goliath. The one who had stood against God's people in a battle they seemed powerless to win. So David is for us a type, a shadow of Christ. He is the shepherd king from of old that points us to this new shepherd king, the perfect shepherd king who would come again from Bethlehem. And we see the promise that God made to, Dan, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he promises that one day, one day there will be a king who will sit on his throne forever, a forever king with a forever kingdom. God's promised shepherd king in Micah 5 looks back to this promised king from long ago and looks forward to the birth of this new shepherd king who will fulfill the promises made to David. The shepherd king who would come from Bethlehem and from of old is an eternal shepherd king, one who would never sin, who would never lead his people astray and never lose his royal throne. The promise from Micah comes at a time when it looks for all the world that God's promise is about to fail. The king here is dethroned and all hope seems to be lost, but God speaks a word of hope through his prophet Micah. My promised shepherd is still coming. I have not forgotten my promises. God keeps his promises and how precious are his promises to us in times like these when it seems like all hope is lost. How precious to know that even when the worst thing happens, God is and always has been and always will be a God who keeps his promises. So we've looked at where he comes from. Next, let's look at who he comes to. And in verse three, we see this. We see he comes to Israel and he calls them his brothers. We are told that this shepherd king would be born in this nowhere town, but he would rule over all of Israel. This is incredible, and not least because it signifies that this king will, like David, once again rule over a united kingdom. The kingdom in Micah's day is fractured, divided, and much of it seems to be eradicated forever, but yet this shepherd king is going to come to Israel and to unite his people, to restore his kingdom. And we see that he calls his people, 
that will be gathered to him his brothers. This is an astonishing fact. The shepherd king calls his people brothers. He is born as one of them in weakness. He comes from a place of weakness to a people of weaklings, his brothers. The shepherd king would identify completely with the people that he comes to rescue and to rule. He would not sit aloof and above, away from the gloom and grime of the nation in the luxury and sterility of a royal palace. This ruler would be among his people. He would be born as one of them. He would suffer weakness as one of them. He would suffer obscurity and hardship and pain. He would die for them. He would be able to sympathize with them in every way. This ruler would be totally different to all the rulers that had come before. We read of this in, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, 11 tells us that, that Jesus being made like us as a man means that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And in Hebrews chapter 2, 17, we read, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to do away with the sins of the people. God's promised shepherd king would be born into this place of weakness to a people of weaklings, and he comes to his brothers to save them. In becoming like his people, the shepherd king would relate to us as a brother. And we see at the end of verse 3 that the result of this reign is that he gathers his brothers in. Those who had been scattered as a result of their sin would be restored and the kingdom would be reunited. That was a promise for, for God's people then. It's a promise for God's people now today. We have been gathered from, from all of the nations and it is a promise that still stands God in his shepherd king is still gathering his brothers in from all corners of the world. But how would the shepherd king achieve this? What would the shepherd king do? And what would he bring when he comes? This takes us to our, our final point and the point that speaks most clearly, I think, to the longing for peace that we opened this morning's sermon with. The ruler to be born in Bethlehem, the one from of old is God's promised shepherd king who comes to rule over his people, bringing restoration, reconciliation, and peace. This shepherd king, he comes from this place of weakness to us, a people of weaklings, and he comes to fight the war caused by sin, and he will win for us. But how? How does he do it? We see in verse 4, that he stands to shepherd his flock. He will shepherd his people with divine strength and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This is no ordinary king, no ordinary shepherd. This is the divine shepherd king, God's promised one. God in the flesh come to shepherd his flock with might and majesty. And when we see the word flock, this is not meant to be a flattering metaphor. It highlights our, our stupidity, our vulnerability, our weakness. We are like sheep. We go astray and get lost, and we need a shepherd. And when we think of shepherds in this context, 
It's a term of power and strength. We need to think of the kind of shepherd that that David was, the kind who fought lions and bears with his own hands, the kind of shepherd who puts himself in harm's way to protect his sheep. This shepherd is a warrior who fights for his people. So the shepherd king who rules over his people fights for his people. We see in verse 4 that he stands and they dwell secure. If we translate it literally, it says, if he stands to shepherd his people and his people sit. He stands, we sit. People do not sit to fight. They do not sit if they're under threat or if they're insecure. You only sit down when you are safe. When you are in fear or under threat, you don't sit. But here, there is the promise for a people who are weak and under threat that they cannot resist, that God himself will stand for them. God's promised shepherd king will stand and protect his people so that they can rest, they can sit, they can dwell secure. What wonderful truth that brings us this morning. Because he stands, we can sit. And it gets even better when we look to the start of verse 5. This shepherd king, it says, will bring about the peace that the people so longed for and needed. But more than bringing just an external peace, more than bringing a a ceasefire, this shepherd, he doesn't bring a, a negotiated truce. He eradicates all threat. And this shepherd brings shalom, that a deep, pervasive peace, peace that transcends circumstances, not just a an external kind of peace that relies on all of our problems being neatly sorted out. An internal peace that cannot be shaken, whatever the situation. This is indwelling peace, not a kind of topical remedy to the war of this world, but a transformative remedy, one that works from the inside out. No, it does not actually say that he will bring peace or he will give peace. It says he will be peace to them. This is who he is. This is the kind of peace that we all need and long for, a kind of peace that no other king can bring. The peace that we need more than anything is not peace around us, out there, but peace within us, peace that comes only from a peace with God. The war that rages is because of sin, and we cannot win by our own power, because sin is not just out there. It is in here. You see, we are naturally enemies of God, sinful rebels. We live in opposition to Him, placing other kings on the throne of our lives, placing ourselves on the throne that God ought to occupy. In a sense, we are at war with God, and it's a war that we cannot win. But there is a hope for peace. God himself sends his shepherd king to bring peace, to be peace for us. When Jesus was born, do you remember what was announced to the shepherds in Luke 2, 14? The angels said, glory to God in highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the educated religious men recognized right away that this baby was Micah's promised shepherd king, the one who would be peace. And he grows into a boy and a man, and we see him choosing the place of weakness to be among the weak, to come to weaklings, outcast, helpless, poor, and oppressed. As he dies, we see him raised up as the shepherd king who fights for us, who does war with sin. And sinless as he is, he wins the battle against sin that we cannot win and is victorious in our place. He is the might, in, he in the might and majesty of God is raised from the grave. Death could not hold him. He is too powerful. He is the divine shepherd king. And he crushes all his enemies under his feet, including death and sin. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of peace on earth, peace between man and God. This is an act of favor or grace that God gives to his people. In Colossians 1.20, we read that the peace that began at his birth was further sealed with the blood of Christ Jesus on the cross. By his blood, our sins are dealt with by the shedding of his blood. The thing that causes war between man and God is removed. Peace is made possible. He brings peace. He is our peace. But we know that even this is not the end of the story. Jesus was born bringing promised peace. Jesus died and rose again, winning the war over sin and securing peace between sinful man and holy God for all who will accept Jesus as their shepherd king. And yet, even knowing this peace within, we still live in a world that is marred by war, by conflict and hostility. But this is not the end of the story. Christmas was not the end of the story. The cross was not even the end of the story because Jesus is coming back. And with him, he will bring perfect restoration, perfect and complete and final peace to a world where sin is no more, death is no more, war is no more. He will forever be our shepherd king. He will be our peace. So this Christmas, just as we close, as we think about the significance of Jesus born in Bethlehem, let's remember Micah 5. And let's also remember that when the wise men in Matthew 2 inquired, they were told without hesitation that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is God's promised shepherd king. He is the one who comes into the war of this world, war caused by sin that we could not win. He is the one born into a place of weakness for a people of weaklings. He is the one who will be like his brothers, but able to rescue his brothers because he is without sin. Jesus is God's promised shepherd king, the one who lived, died, was raised again, and who will return. If he is our shepherd king today, he is our peace, and we can look forward with certain hope to a time of complete and perfect peace when we can fall in worship before his throne in the same way that the wise men fell in worship before the boy, Jesus Christ, at first Christmas.
Let's, um, let's pray together before we sing our final song. Father God, we, we come to you this morning and we, we come as people who, who are sinners, people who, who know the war that rages around us and the war that rages within us because of sin. And Lord, we feel often overwhelmed and helpless But help us this morning to to grasp the truth of the promise brought to us by Micah. That the promised shepherd king to be born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, is the one who is peace for us. We thank you that he came into this world to rescue us, to fight for us, to die for us. We thank you that he He won the victory over sin and death, and his victory is ours this morning if we trust in him. Father, would you help us this Christmas to live in the peace that only you can bring? And Lord, as we do that, help us to be heralds of this message of peace to a world that is so devoid of peace. Lord, would you help us to be messengers of this peace this this Christmas and, and every day, Lord, Help us to know it and help us to to preach it to one another. Father, we just thank you for all that you've done for us. And we thank you for your promised shepherd king. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. And may the Lord be with you all. In Jesus' name, amen.